Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And today on the program, we have a very special uh, sequence of interviews and uh, a whole lot of really good material to get to you to celebrate the fact that voters are voting. Yes, it is the first of the 2018 primaries coming up on Tuesday in the great state of Texas, the Lone Star State, featuring the first opportunity for the so-called resistance to make itself known in actual primary voting that will impact the 2018 elections. Yes, it's early, but it is happening. And Texas is really the center of so many of the interesting developments that we're seeing popping around the country. We're seeing a wave of intriguing first-time candidates, many of them women, getting off the sidelines, getting involved in the race. We're going to bring you an interview with one of the folks that Democrats are pretty excited about, uh, a young woman named Gina Ortiz-Jones, who is the leading candidate in in one of these districts that Democrats are so excited about in Texas. Uh, They look to flip a whole bunch of them. My colleague Mary Bruce spent a couple days in Texas in the last couple of days. Uh, As part of our 18 for 18 project, you've seen it on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. You'll see more on Nightline. We're excited to bring you uh, that interview and some interviews with some voters in Texas, uh, including one woman who's not a voter, there's actually a a dreamer, and that dreamer deadline is coming up and is a very relevant issue in the state of Texas. But as we look at the 2018 uh, midterm elections that are now officially upon us, Texas is the beginning uh, and maybe the end. If the Democrats get their hopes, they could they could see their majority go right through the great state of Texas. But before we get to any of that, I want to bring you a conversation with uh, one of the leading voices in Texas politics, a guy who knows maybe more about uh, the, the dynamics of Texas than, than any of the, the, the very many young Democratic stars out there. Uh, Julian Castro, who is the former Housing and Urban Development Secretary and former Mayor of San Antonio. Mr. Secretary, thanks for being here. Glad to be with you. And you've been a busy man, uh, traveling quite a bit uh, around the country over the last year or so, but it is primary day in your native state of Texas, and man, what a map uh, Democrats are, are looking at. A pretty ambitious attempt to, to grab a whole bunch of House seats, maybe even uh, Ted Cruz's Senate seat. What is your view on the primaries? We've seen some of the turnout numbers so far, but what what will Tuesday's results tell us about the state of the so-called resistance in Texas? Mainly what we're going to see on Tuesday, I think, is uh, a tremendous amount of Democratic enthusiasm. And we kind of are able to see that already with the early vote numbers. For the first time uh, in a midterm in 12 years, so since the 06 midterm, uh, more Democrats have voted in the primary than Republicans. Uh, Now, that happened in 2008 because you had a very pitched battle between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama for the uh, Democratic primary in Texas. But it hasn't happened in the midterms since 06. And everybody knows that in 06, that was a great year uh, around the country for Democrats. And here in Texas, I believe there were two congressional seats that were that were reclaimed by the Democrats. So what we've seen so far is that in the big counties like Harris County that has Houston, in Bear County that has San Antonio, Dallas, and so forth, more Democrats have actually turned out to early vote than Republicans. So when you when you when you try to pitch this forward to the general election, it's impossible to to really know what it means because there there are far fewer competitive Republican primaries than Democratic primaries. I don't think anyone is arguing that this is this tells you that Texas is now a blue state. Uh, maybe you'll maybe you'll disabuse me of that notion. Tell me that, but. 
what what has to happen in your view in Texas this year? Do you have a number of House seats in mind? Uh, there's people have talked about the demographic uh, shifts in Texas. Um, President Trump carried the state pretty handily, uh, regardless of all of that. But are you sensing things are changing? And what? How important is is 2018 to the overall picture in Texas? It's important. Um, the way that I think about it is to think, okay, let's say that we're on the day after the November election. Uh, as a Democrat that, of course, wants to see Texas uh, turn blue, uh, what would you like to see, basically, in the night's results? And uh, number one, I'd like to see us, of course, pick up some congressional seats. There are three congressional seats that are prime targets. Uh, the 7th Congressional District that John Culberson represents right now the 23rd Congressional District that uh, Will Hurd represents, and the 32nd Congressional District, which Pete Sessions represents. Uh, each of those districts was won by Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential race. Uh, each of them has a number of Democratic uh, candidates that are good candidates in the primary and will likely send a strong Democrat uh, up against uh, those incumbent Republicans in November. So taking at least one or two or hopefully three of those. And then secondly, there's a lot of attention around Beto O'Rourke. Uh, he is the strongest candidate that we've seen for a statewide office. You know, of course, this is not one of the government, state government offices, but somebody that has to run statewide as senator. He's taking on Ted Cruz. He's beating, he's beating him in fundraising three out of the last four cycles. Uh, the last poll that came out had them within eight points. And you can feel that he's developing momentum. He's closing the gap. And so what I'd like to see is, uh, obviously, I'd like to see him win, and I think that it's possible that he can win. But we need to at least see that he's up there in the mid-40s to to high-40s. If that happens, it's going to be a very clear signal that uh, Texas has made real progress. And we've been doing quite a bit of reporting on, on several of these races. And in fact, we're going to talk to one of the Democrats uh, in the, the 23rd district, Will Hurd's district, in a few moments. But I want to ask you about something that's going on in the 7th Congressional District, Culberson's district. This is Houston area. Something pretty extraordinary happened in the last couple of weeks of the of the primary race. Something I hadn't seen before. Maybe maybe you've seen it. Um, but the 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 triple C, the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, their job is to elect Democrats to Congress. They put out uh, what I would term as just a public hit job on one of the leading candidates in that race, a woman named Laura Mosier, um, strong liberal credentials, strong progressive credentials, been pretty prominent um, on the face of Time magazine, among other things. They feel like she's just a da- that damaged goods because of her ties to Washington, and they put out a pretty harsh uh, portfolio on her, pronouncing her basically unelectable in that district to try to shape the finalists uh, for the the primary because Texas has a runoff. What did you make of that move from national Democrats? And do you think it it will make a difference in that race? You know, it's hard to tell if that's going to make a difference. It's relatively late. The voting, I think some of the voting is already happening. Uh, I have not followed that race the way that I followed the 32nd and the 23rd because Opportunity First, the pack that I set up to support candidates, we're supporting candidates in those other two districts, but not in the seventh. You know, if you ask the D, the DCCC, their argument is that they want to make sure the strongest Democrat emerges. Uh, I don't know about the wisdom of taking that approach right now in that district and in these primaries because everybody is so energized, and you're going to need that energy going into the fall to take these districts that 
yes, Hillary Clinton won them, but it's also clear that those those congressmen that represent them uh, have their own base of support and they have some crossover appeal. So whether that ends up helping or hurting, uh, of course, the jury is still out. But I think it's safe to say that the DCCC would be wise uh, to, to be very careful about how many times it does something like that. I, it, it did, to me, speak to a larger concern that you hear, not just in Texas, but but around the country. There's Democrats uh, try to channel the anger at Trump and the enthusiasm in their base into actual electoral wins. Is there a danger, I think the C was speaking to this, is there a danger in the Democrats pushing each other too far left to be electable in, in some of these districts? Is that a concern of yours in these th- three districts and other targeted districts? I think in theory that's possible. I don't think we're there yet. You know, I mean, look what the Republicans did over the years with folks in Nevada and uh, New Hampshire, a couple of other states that that they were way too far to the right. Haken a few years ago in Missouri. Um, We don't want to make that mistake. I don't know that the issue is going too far to the left. Those candidates that had problems for the Republicans also were quirky candidates that said dumb things. I don't see Democrats having the problem of candidates, even if they're very far to the left. We don't have candidates that are going out there saying just purely dumb stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your political energies right now. You mentioned the the pack that you're uh, working with uh, right now, Opportunity First, uh, a bunch in Texas and some others around the country. Uh, what What is the idea behind it? What are you targeting in particular? And what sets you apart from the very many other PACs that are out there supporting Democratic candidates? Well, what we're doing is supporting young progressive Democrats. Uh, I got into public service at the age of 26. My brother got involved, uh, got elected at 28. And what I noticed over the years is... Uh, that when somebody is just starting out, when they're running for city council or if they're a young person running for Congress, oftentimes they're told to wait their turn or that they need more experience. Uh, I want to encourage young people to get involved in politics, and I believe that this is the year to do it. So uh, one of the things that distinguishes us is that we're really focusing uh, on young people in politics. And the good news is that in these 24 congressional districts, in city council races, state rep races around the country. We have a lot of new young faces that are smart, that are well-informed, that do have good experience. And uh, I'm going to spend my time between now and November supporting them. And we saw the interview that you did recently with CNN where you said, I'm, quote, I'm interested, but I'm, whether or not I end up doing it, I'll decide that later, or on the, the, the kind of constant question of whether, whether you're running for president. You can give me your, your kind of stock spiel on that, but I'm also curious about the timeline if you're looking at this and saying, uh, maybe there's an advantage to, to jumping in this race very quickly. There's already one Democratic candidate, uh, a, a, a congressman from Maryland, John Delaney, who's in the race. Any thought to potentially declaring before the midterms, or is this something you think that shakes out shortly after November? Yeah, I, I, have, not, uh, I have not given thought to doing anything before the midterms. Uh, you know, I believe that we need to focus on the folks who are on the ballot in 2018 and keep our eye on that. Uh, and then right after the midterms, I'll make a decision before the end of the year. And uh, I'm, I know, just like everybody else, that we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, well-qualified uh, folks, dynamic people running. What I have to do during these next few months is 
get out there and get a sense of uh, whether there's a path for me. And before we let you go, uh, the headline in the last uh, week or so, uh, your successor at uh, at HUD, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, some negative headlines for spending $31,000 to buy some new office furniture for the secretary's suite. Uh, I, I guess my, and he, he ended up re- reversing that or canceling the order. My question is, how bad was the furniture in the office that you might have to even consider, that your successor would even consider spending that kind of money to replace it? <laughs> Uh, it, it was fine. It, uh, it had been there, I think for several decades, but it had this kind of antique charm to it and they kept it in very nice condition. During my tenure as secretary, I hosted several senators, uh, several congressional representatives, uh, you know, other people in the building for breakfast and lunch. I always thought the furniture was fine and, uh, I'm not, not quite sure what led to the decision to replace it or to spend that much money to do it. It was a bad decision. It showed bad judgment. I think it made news because it really points out the hypocrisy of trying to cut $6 billion from the budget to serve people who genuinely uh, are working hard and need it out there for housing assistance, and at the same time make the Secretary's office as lavish as possible. That's not what we're supposed to be about in public service. And I'm glad to see that Secretary Carson reversed course. Uh, unfortunately, this is just one of many instances, whether it's uh, former Secretary Price's use of charter jets or other travel expenses that we've seen with other cabinet members. This is an administration that wastes money by habit, and they ought to cut that out. All right. Julian Castro, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, former mayor of San Antonio. Thanks for being here on Powerhouse Politics, and uh, good luck uh, watching the election returns on on Tuesday. You're going to be in the state on Tuesday night? I will. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. And as I mentioned earlier, Mary Bruce spent some time uh, down with, uh, with, uh, with our colleague Mary Ellis Parks uh, doing some interviews down in Texas. One of the people she caught up with is one of the most intriguing Democrats you're ever going to hear about, Gina Ortiz-Jones. Uh, she's um, less than 40 years old, meets that definition as a younger Democrat. Uh, she is a first-generation American, the daughter of, uh, of, a, of a single mom immigrant. She's an Air Force veteran. She is a lesbian. And uh, she is also worked in the Trump administration, uh, albeit briefly in, in in the trade office, and she is not shying away from being a true blue progressive, even in a state like Texas. Take a listen to some of the conversation of Gina Ortiz-Jones, candidate for Congress, with our Mary Bruce. So this district, bigger than the country of France, all right? Just, just this district? Just this district, just District 23. It goes from San Antonio to El Paso, 538 miles across. 40% of the U.S. border runs through this district, right? This is, uh, this is a district that uh, Hillary won by three points, mm-hmm. just narrowly lost at the congressional level by one point. And frankly, that's why we're having a conversation in Del Rio, yeah. because you can't assume somebody's with you, you can't assume somebody's not with you. you got to talk to everybody, and that's how we win this race. But you also, I mean, looking at the map, it looks yeah. a little bit like 
a quilt. You have yeah. some very red counties, some very blue counties. How do you appeal to everybody? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, we're not looking at colors. We're talking about issues, mm -hmm. right? And that's why I think people are so energized by this campaign. When they look at my life experiences, when they look at what I've, the, the, the life of public service that I've led, and, you know, I've never asked anybody, are you red, blue, what have you? In or out of uniform, it was always, what, what do we need to do in the interest of the country? Mm -hmm. And then how do we get that done? And that's how we're approaching this campaign. And that's why we're talking about the issues that matter most. And that's why, you know, that's why we've got real momentum. How do you cover 500 plus miles? Yeah. I mean, besides having like a good truck, <laughs> um, you know, always having a full tank of gas. That's, that's right. just a huge swath to have to navigate. Yeah. Well, again, this is, I mean, if you want to win, if you want to serve, you've got to meet everybody. You've got to talk about health care in San Antonio and health care in Alpine. You've got to talk about health care in Presidio. Presidio, a county, uh, well, a, a community on the border, mm -hmm. and, and to understand their health needs, understanding that the nearest hospital is 85 miles away, mm -hmm. right? And so, so, but then also, not only healthcare, but how do you also understand the real digital divide uh, that, that it happens in this district that is 85% rural? Now, only 15% yeah. of the population lives in that area, but look, you can't leave anybody behind. That's not how I was We raised. saw a lot of cows. You did? <laughs> a lot of cows. They, even those are not single-issue <laughs> voters, by the way. Yeah. Everybody's got a, a portfolio of things that they care about. Um, but you, you can see, yes, it's diverse in, 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 in the challenges and opportunities um, but frankly, everybody knows the importance of this upcoming election and the need to, to frankly, get this ship on the right track. Have you hit every county? Do you think you're going to make it? There across? are 29 counties. Okay. Uh, How are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> we're working hard. We're working hard. Um, and we're trying to meet as many voters uh, where they are uh, as possible. But it has to be such different. I mean, everyone votes by, you know, everyone has their own issues that sure. lead them to the polls. You yeah. have really urban areas, really yeah. rural areas where I imagine, you know, what drives them maybe something completely different. That's true. That's true. And that's why we've got to get out there and talk to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you're right. There are, the, the, it looks a little bit different, but as we've driven the district, it, it primarily revolves around uh, one, healthcare, mm -hmm. right? Again, healthcare in a place like San Antonio. Um, and this matters because one in 10 kids in this country goes to school in Texas. 50, mm -hmm. One in 10 kids, right? And then 50% of our kids in the state rely on CHIP or Medicaid, mm -hmm. right? So this is something that affects the entire state. Um, but it is more difficult for, for our communities in the rural areas that, you know, for that community health clinic that doesn't have all the services that might be in San Antonio or mm -hmm. El Paso, which makes it all the more important that we invest not only in, uh, you know, digital infrastructure, but also, frankly, protect uh, funding, for example, for Amtrak, which is mm -hmm. so critical not only to the economy in Alpine, but frankly, if you've got a medical condition, you've got to get to a a, a major a hospital, you take that Amtrak and you take it to El Paso or you take it to Houston, right? These are, you, you, don't, you, you don't really fully appreciate these things until you spend time in the community and that's why it's so important that we've done that. And we were talking earlier about why you got into this race. Yeah. This is, you, was running for Congress even on your radar? No, no, and this comes up a lot, right? And they said, you know, you've never run for office. And I said, yes, but I've been a public servant, right, for 14 years. And so I fundamentally think about this, uh, about a member of Congress does, very simply. I think a member of Congress does three things. I think they create opportunities, they protect opportunities, or they erase opportunities, right? They do that with their voting record, and they do that with their record of silence. So... If Donald Trump had not been elected, would you still be sitting in an office in Washington working for the administration? Um, potentially. 
Right. Uh, Potentially. To me, it's always been, I mean, I constantly ask myself, right? I mean, whether I was on the front line in Iraq, front line in Africa, front line working in the executive office of the president, how am I best contributing? How am I best giving back to a country that has given me so much? Uh, so, uh, you know, it's hard to ask that question because we're not in that situation. Um, but I know, you know, what these times have, have, have called me to do, and, and this is it. But Donald Trump was the impetus for you to jump in the race. Well, I think the, you know, protecting the opportunities that were critical for me uh, to grow up healthy, get an education, and serve my country. Uh, it's not just him, though, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an entourage around him that's enabling him. And it's no small part Republicans like the one that's serving this district or not serving this district right now. Um, and frankly, their, their voting record and the record of silence that is enabling what Donald Trump uh, wants to do to this country. When you hear people that look at the huge number of first-time yeah. female candidates right. getting into the race, and they say that candidates like you are the face of the resistance. Mm. Is that a term that you embrace? Um, Is it true? Uh, I think we are the face. I think you know we're more interested in being, frankly, the new face of Congress, right? The new face of representation. Um, I mean, it, it can't be surprising that the number of women running, the number of women of color running, uh, that you, the people that have the most to lose. You cannot be surprised that they have stepped up and said, you know what? I'm done assuming somebody is going to do for me that which I can do for myself. Right? Yeah, why are there so many women running? I mean, even in Texas. Well, there are dozens of first-time female candidates right. just in this state. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say even in Texas. Though. This, is the, this is the state of Ann Richards. This is the state of Cecile Richards. This is the state of Leticia Vandepew. Strong women, right? Uh, that You're saying we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Um, and, and frankly, you know, this, this race is going, this race in 2018 is going to show, frankly, the state, the rest of the country, uh, what really is in store for, for Texas. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a sleeping giant. Um, um, uh, but I look forward to, to being part of, uh, frankly, turning Texas blue and, and, frankly, helping get the rest of the country back on track. You think it's realistic that Texas can go blue? For sure. Why? Well, when you look at when you look at the type of can, it's not just women in general running, right? When you look at the type of candidates that are running, this is the first year that Texas has put up a Democrat in every congressional race, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you know there are great candidates running across across the state, and so I think uh, you know we've got a varied uh, number of experiences, but we really represent the future of this of this state. And I think you know when people see us on the ballot, they they know that they've got a record of public service, life experiences that are really going to serve this district and serve. State. Do you think eventually we would have gotten to this point where this many women were running for office? It's just that things seem to be in warp speed, right? When you look at how yeah. many women were running for office the last go round. Sure. And now. Well, I mean, what, what is also warp speed, right, is the way in which this administration, these Republicans are trying to erase our, our, the progress that we've made, right? Frankly, as a member of the LGBT community, as somebody that served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, right, uh, for this administration to be taking the steps that they are against the LGBT community um, and people that just want to, to serve our country, right? Uh, so this is, yes, the number of people stepping up is at warp speed because we see, you know, the threat against our basic rights also be taking, being taken away or attempted to be taken away at warp speed. What do you think about when you come down here? Well, I mean, I think about what each of the mayors that I've talked to tell me that, you know, when you talk about uh, 
Eagle Pass. You can't talk about Eagle, the future of Eagle Pass without talking about Piedras Negras, which is their sister city on the other side. You can't talk about Presidio without talking about Ojinaga. So, uh, you know, the people know that the economic, the cultural, the social ties um, are, are strong and are frankly understanding and appreciating those is really going to be the key to strengthening both communities, right? That's how you really make communities stronger and safer, uh, not with a wall. And you can actually see... I think, you know, obviously the wall is huh. the physical wall. Right, right. Um, but then the border is actually the, the river right there. That's I mean, right. if we could, you could walk really quickly. I mean, right. this is literally the, their backyard. Right, 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 right. What do you make of the debate, the action, the lack of action yeah. that you're seeing in Washington on this issue? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's 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 unfortunate because uh, the number of folks that I've talked to um, on, on the, that work on the war every day are, are really worried about the amount of crime that goes unreported, right? Um, and that's because, uh, you know, frankly, people uh, have lost a little bit of trust in, in what might happen to them if they call law enforcement and then one of their family members is undocumented. Right? So you mean, so, when you say the crime that's being undocumented, what kind of crime are you talking about? Well, we were talking to a sheriff and they said, you know, we're going to have one of the lowest rates of uh, domestic violence reported this year. We know that it's not, uh, we know that it's happening, it's just people aren't calling us because there's somebody in the family or maybe the person being abused is actually undocumented. So it's actually making communities less safer, less secure, um, and, and that's, you know, that's the true cost of, of this uncertainty. The, the fear. Of, the fear, yeah, because they are... There's administration's policies. That's right, and what could happen to them. And so you're actually, you know, people are, are, are not calling the exact institutions that are there to keep them safe. And what do you think, is there something that Washington doesn't understand about areas like this? Is there something that you think Washington... Yeah doesn't get about communities like this that actually have the border quite yeah. literally in their backyard. Well, you know, it, it goes back to the conversation that I've had with, with uh, you know, elected officials in this area, which is, you know, they're talking about b bridges, not walls, right? And that just reflects, again, the economic, the social, the cultural ties that you really appreciate when you're here, right? I mean, the, the fact that, you know, nearly 50% of, of the city of Eagle Pass is, um, revenues come from the, the bridge traffic, right? So they're wanting another bridge, right? Because it's, again, so key to their economic future. Same thing in Presidio. They're talking about, you know, how do we make this, this, uh, this port of entry ag certified so we, can, uh, so we can have more products coming in from Mexico. That's how we strengthen these communities is through economics, not through, not through wall wall. Now, there are some, uh, some who may be your constituents sure. who say build the wall. What do you say to them? Well, I mean, I think, frankly, you know, there's a lot more that we could be investing in, in this district, in this country, right? I mean, I'd rather be investing in smart, healthy kids, not a smart wall. You're a first-generation American. That's right. How has that shaped you as a candidate? How yeah. has that shaped the policies that you right. would like to pursue? Yeah, I mean... Uh, you're right. It is no small part of, of who I am and how I think about policies. And, and I always share with people, with people, one of my earliest memories is quizzing my mom on her naturalization test. Really? Right? It's why I know to this day, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. Um, and so I say, you know, I, I knew I'd come to find out that I would never have to take that test. But I think, you know, we're being tested as Texans. We're being tested as Americans. You know, is this the kind of country you want to live in? Is the, are these the type of leaders that reflect our values and the values of our great country? Um, and I think the answer is, you know, we need a change. And the, your primary is actually the day after the deadline. That's right. The president's deadline to, to take some kind of action to protect dreamers. Right. What is your message to those nearly 800,000 young people who are probably feeing a lot of uncertainty? Yeah, right you know, and... and 
uh, to be clear, one of the one of my experiences that has that has shaped my views on this is when I was an ROTC cadet at Boston University. Um, I had a, I mean, I was fortunate to receive the scholarship, but I uh, don't ask, don't tell applied to me. Right, so the experience of, of having the opportunity, having worked hard for something, having worked hard for that opportunity to get an education, that opportunity then to go on to serve my country. I lived in fear every day that that would be ripped away from me if they found out that I was gay. So, you know, I'm not a dreamer, but uh, that fear, I know, I, I can only imagine what that kid um, at, at Sol Ross State or at University of Texas at San Antonio, University of Texas at El Paso, what they're thinking through uh, when they similarly live in fear that their opportunity to get an education, their opportunity to, to contribute to this country um, could be ripped away from them based on the, frankly, the lack of core, lack of moral courage of so many of their of these elected officials to really pass a clean dream act. Now, as a first generation American, yeah. what do you make of the president's comments about immigrants? The yeah. president's calling for a big, beautiful wall. For him, this fence isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Was that one of the factors that drove you to want to get in this race? Yeah, I mean, it's something that's uh, it's unfortunate when when the commander in chief does not understand, uh, does not appreciate that we are a country of immigrants, when he does not appreciate the sacrifices of 800 plus DACA recipients currently serving in our military, a military that he uh, was not brave enough to serve in, right? I mean, that that really, uh, um, frankly, for all of us is is, is concerning cause, because again, all of us either, um, you know, we are, we are, we're from somewhere else, right? Unless you're a Native American, we're all from somewhere else. And we need to appreciate that and understand that that's a strength and that'll continue being a strength of this country. How much is immigration a driving factor for, or what is the percentage? It's 70, 80%? 70% Hispanic. 70% Hispanic. Yeah. 70% Hispanic or Latino. So what, how much is immigration a driving voting factor for many of people in this community and in this district? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big issue for, for many folks. I think it's also, I mean, we see this a little bit differently down here, right? I mean, it's so tied to uh, the future of our, you know, the, the economics of this district, right? Um, not only, again, the social or cultural ties, but really the economic future. I mean, San Antonio is the home of where NAFTA was signed, right? Um, and so we can't, we have to fully appreciate everybody that's contributing to the economy, and that includes um, immigrants. How are you, I mean, we, the, the debate in Washington right now is so divisive, hmm. so polarized. Yeah. I mean, they're really, they're not making much headway. How can you change that? Well, I mean, it's it, when I was in, uh, you, frankly, you don't go from reduced lunch to executive office of the president without, frankly, knowing how to get things done, being willing to work with others, um, but also having the moral courage to say, nope, this is what we've got to do. And, you know, in the military, when I was a civil servant, I never asked anybody what, what party they were with. It was always about what is the problem we we're trying to solve? Who can I work with to get me to, to you know, to, to move this, to advance this, and, and frankly accomplish what we've been asked to do? Um, so I think, you know, I think there's going to be good people uh, uh, to work with on both sides of this issue and understand that this is this is a, an issue of moral courage uh, and an issue that everybody is watching, not just folks in this country, but frankly the rest of the world is, is looking to how we're going to treat people in our own country, understanding that, again, we're a country of immigrants. How much, I mean, you have such a national security right. background. Right. How, help us understand, like, how much is this really a national security issue? Well, I mean, you know, uh, if you, uh, the 9-11 commission report mm -hmm. talked about 9-11 being a failure of imagination. I think that's not too far off from a failure of empathy. Right, and if you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes, if you can't understand why, frankly, you know, folks are are um, 
are, are, are protesting or are kind of up in arms in, in, in Ferguson or Baltimore, if you don't understand that, then you're not going to understand why that young person in Tunisia set themselves on fire, right? And that's a, that's, that's a national security issue um, because, look, if, if the next generation of Americans look up at their current public servants, from the president to the attorney general to, to their current representative and see them making statements, taking actions um, that, that show that they don't see value in the next generation of Americans, then the real national security threat is when the next generation of Americans don't value public service. A failure of empathy. Do you, is that something that you think Washington is suffering from? Yes. That's an easy question. No hesitation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, obviously the president wants, this is it. This is a big fence. The president is calling for a big, yeah. beautiful wall. What do you want Washington to understand about the role the border plays in these communities that you're hoping to represent? Well, you know, as again, as the elected officials talk about, you know, the wall would devastate the economies, right? I mean, the wall running, a wall running through Big Bend uh, National Park, that would, that would obviously, you know, destroy, destroy the park, destroy, you know, the national treasure that it is, but also that would, frankly, uh, um, really take away from the really, the real economic um, uh, um, opportunities that, that the border provides. Um, so it, it, there's, Again, this is we have the lowest number of illegal crossings in 41 years. You mean the right? president? The president right now says a wall is needed for security, for to protect Americans. Yeah. Well, I mean, the wall is also talking about people coming from shithole countries. So I don't know if his analysis on, on many things is actually what's needed. This is, uh, this is again, I can think of a number of ways just in this district in which we could better spend $50 billion, right? It start, for me, that's, uh, again, smart and healthy kids, not a smart wall. And when we come back here on Powerhouse Politics, Mary Bruce will talk to some more voices in the state of Texas on the eve of Election Day. Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, Some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. And you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and subscribe today. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba. Ariana Huffington. Issa Rae. Barbara Corcoran. Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Of course, the big issue going into the Texas primary just because of the calendar, because of the news cycle, has been the issue of guns. It's a hot-button issue everywhere, particularly in a state like Texas, which has got strong ties to the NRA and to a gun-carrying culture. Uh, This is Mary Bruce talking to some folks on the ground in Texas about guns and also President Trump. What do you think of the job the president's doing? I love it. I think he's doing a great job, and I think that... I don't think there's ever been a president that's been scrutinized like he has. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing as good a job as he was qualified to do. Do you make of the gun debate that we've seen over the last week? I think there's a lot of good, valid points 
but I'm not necessarily for more, more rules about guns. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's more of an issue with mental health, and, and I, I, do, I think we need to protect our children as far as better protecting the schools, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I don't necessarily think it's a gun issue. A lot of our leaders are, are going more towards gun control, and, and I, I think a lot of them are not backing our president, and I don't, I don't like that. We see the president's calling for, for arming more teachers. You would support that? Yes, I would. This is, you know, a lot of people are already are carrying, you know, they just can't carry on mm -hmm. school property and stuff like that. We need to have that. Kids need to be protected. How we're going to deal with keeping our students safe. Um, I'm not real big on putting guns in the hands of teachers. We're educators. We're not policemen. Are you an educator? Yes, I am. Yeah, what do you make of the, the president right now has been, that, that's one of the ideas he's floating, is arming more teachers to help fight back. What do you make of that idea? I, I, I just, I, I don't think that that's what we're trained for. I don't think that that's what we would school for. That's not what our call in life is. We are not peacekeepers. We are educators. And we rely on others to do that for us. Just as they rely on us to educate the kids. Background checks, um, in what venues they can buy guns, you know, going to Walmart versus going to a private gun dealer, you know, should those be the same? You know, need to look at that. I think they need to understand what it's like to go to work every day and make a living every day and I don't think that Congressman, most of them don't ever have never had that experience. And the issue of immigration, a huge one in the state of Texas. The border wall would have big implications for lots of folks because of the size of Texas's border with Mexico. And then there's the issue of the Dreamers. According to President Trump, today, March 5th, is actually the deadline beyond which uh, Dreamers won't have protected status anymore. Now, there are court battles that are holding that up, and it's not clear uh, what kind of legal, legal limbo they're actually in. I don't think any are in imminent threat of deportation, but it is a live and real issue for folks. Uh, Mary Bruce talked to a bunch of voters in the state of Texas about these issues of immigration, the issue of the Dreamers, and the issue of the border wall. And when you say secure our borders, what do you make of the president's idea for a wall? Definitely. And what about the debate over these Dreamers, the children who were bought, brought here you know, by their parents when they were little, undocumented though? What do you think should happen to them? I think they should uh, not get citizenship. I think they can stay, but they don't need citizenship. They haven't earned it. You know, I don't think it's necessary right to boot somebody out of the country that's been here and worked here. What do you think should happen to them? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say I have a good answer there. I think that they should be given some consideration. Um, they are here through no fault of their own. You know, whatever, that was adult decision-making, decision and yet they're here. And if they're making good use of their time and, and you know, good use of resources here, they need to be given consideration for that. And finally here today, a special conversation with someone who, you know, we talk all the time in, about, in generic terms about people who are impacted by policy. I want you to meet Jessica Azua, a young woman who is herself a dreamer and is concerned about what happens to her status as this debate rages on in Texas, in Washington, and beyond. They need to take action. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> we have been going to Washington, D.C. as much as we can to give them the message in person. Um, I 
they need to understand that this is affecting us in our lives. And this is not just affecting me as a DAC recipient. Um, this is affecting our community because I am, like, I'm a community organizer. I work with a community on many issues that are impacting them in their communities, but there are also teachers. So this is not just going to affect the teacher as a DACA recipient, but it's also going to affect the students. Uh, this is going to affect the nurses that are also DACA recipients. So it's not just going to affect the nurse, but it's also going to affect the patients. So this is not just about us as the DACA community, as the DACA recipients that we're going to be affected by it, but also the community that is surrounding us. Um, we are very... Um, I don't know, like, I love, I have this job that I love. Um, I, I know that my DACA has an expiration date. My permit has an expiration date, and I don't know what's going to happen then. Um, I feel like every day we're like in a countdown. Today I'm here, and tomorrow I don't know where I'm going to be, if I'm even going to be here. Um, so every day is a countdown, and it, it, it's very, very stressful. It's not, I don't think, no, it's just not. <laughs> One thing that I know is that I'm not just going to sit down and wait. Um, or, I don't know, I, I think that I am a fighter, and I'm going to keep pushing for, even if the deadline March 5th gets here, I'm still going to be out, I'm still going to be in the streets, and I'm still going to be pushing for that permanent solution, because it's very needed, it's affecting us physically and emotionally. Our thanks to Mary Bruce and Mary Alice Parks for uh, putting together a compelling package as part of our 18 for 18 coverage here at ABC News. You can watch it all on Nightline. Part of it was on This Week with George Stephanopoulos, and it'll all be live at abcnews.com. Our thanks to Angie Yak, David Ryan, and Avery Miller, our crack producing team. We'll be back on Wednesday in another uh, regularly scheduled edition of Powerhouse Politics. In the meantime, if you're in Texas, go vote. If you're not in Texas, it's coming for you soon. The election year is upon us. And that's it for today. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein.